0: I'm sure he'll watch this later. Not to critique, just to support. Man, second service got a lot more energy than first service. But first service is deep. Because during the sermon, there were several people who were just standing there with their eyes closed, like (laughs) deep in thought about the sermon. Deep in thought. Man, man. I was texting with Pastor Madden between services and it was pumping me up a little bit. Okay we should probably pray. Oh Lord Jesus I love you so much Lord God. I pray that I would not be a distraction to the words you want to speak to your people Lord God. Teach us by your word Lord God. Make it transformational Lord that we could leave this place different than we came in. We give you glory and we give you praise. Amen. Uh, We'll be preaching out of the Bible this morning, that's okay. Some people look at the Bible in different ways. Um, Their relationship with the Bible looks different. Um, I've heard it, some people call it the basic instructions before leaving earth. Um, Some people look at it as kind of a collection of inspirational quotes or things like that, which it kind of is. Some look at it as kind of a reference guide for living a Christian life. I don't know who you are, but I'm the guy when I get something, I take out the instructions first and read them all the way through once before I even unwrap anything else. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who inventories all the pieces that it says are supposed to be there before I get started. You may not be that person. You may just start slapping stuff together, get the glue out right away. Hey, these don't fit. Just shave it off a little bit. It's probably the wrong piece. You probably just shaved the one piece. Now, the Bible is all those things, but it's kind of, but it's not really. Um, That's not really, I think, how the best way to to view it or how to apply it to your life. The Bible is really actually one continuous story by many authors describing thousands of years of history from Genesis to Revelation. It's all true, and it doesn't contradict itself. It's all one long continuous story of God's plan of redemption for his people. It all connects. From the moment of Adam and Eve to the end of Revelation, it all connects. It's all this one continuous story over thousands of years of God's redemptive plan for his people. Now, God makes several covenants with his people. These are serious binding agreements, covenants made uh, with blood, sealed in blood now that's some serious agreements I don't know that we have any agreements these days that are sealed in blood but I think if we did people would probably hold their commitments a little bit better actually I think in our day and age I think it's really hard to understand what it means when we think of God making a commitment with his people because we don't make commitments or keep them with each other I think there's very few commitment ceremonies that we still have in our culture um I think of joining the military is, is quite a commitment. You raise your hand before people you, you know, promised to support and defend this country against all enemies. Um, but even then, it's not really that binding of a commitment. I had a cousin who was uh, screwing up their lives really bad, but they wanted to be a soldier. I'm like, great. I was telling his mom, just get him to boot camp. Just, just get him to boot camp and they will square him away. I guarantee it. They will fix him and he will have a great life. Um, because I figured once you get into boot camp, you're stuck. I remember what it was like. You're stuck. Once your feet hit those yellow footprints, a Marine Corps boot camp, you're not going anywhere. But what I didn't realize that is if you refuse to train, they will just kick you out. That's right. And so he refused to train. Because apparently they didn't have video games or whatever else he thought they were, whatever the recruiter told him, (laughs) wasn't there. And so he refused to train and they kicked him out. And I found out he was home and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't realize that was a possibility. (laughs) Because when I joined the Marine Corps, I went in on the delayed entry program. So in September, I pledged that I would uh, join the military and do all those things. And then I didn't go until April to boot camp. But in the meantime, Shelly and I were just hanging out and uh, uh, there's opportunities coming your way. And I remember um, there was this opportunity to do a fire department residency program in Kitsap County. And so they were like, hey, just go down there and check it out. So I went down there and you run your half mile and carry hose up and down the stairs and and I made the cut. Uh, Out of 18 people, I was one that got chosen to be part of this program. But the problem I had was that I had already committed to going into the Marine Corps and I had a lot of people, not a lot, I had two or three people saying, hey, listen, you can still get out of it. You just, they, they can't make you go at this point. You can still get out of it. But really inside, I thought, I made the commitment. So I'm going to go. And hey, it turned out okay. You know, it all worked out okay. I think of the, one of the main commitments that we have is Marriage. The marriage ceremony, till death do you part, sickness and health, Uh, in front of your family and friends, you come up here and commit before God and everybody that you're going to be married no matter what, that this relationship, one flesh. But in our day and age, it's just one flesh until you get tired of it or fall in love with somebody else or decide it doesn't fit in with your, your life anymore. Not even that seems to be a binding agreement. Now we see in the Bible, oftentimes marriage is used as this metaphor, as this example for Christ and his church, for God and his people. And so how can we fully understand well, God's commitment to his people when we can't even see an example of marriage that's committed? It's hard. You know, people don't keep their word, but I think that sometimes people don't mind that other people don't keep their word because it gives them excuse for not keeping their own word. I know I said I'd do it, but no one really sticks to their commitments anyway, so they're not going to be surprised when I back out at the last minute. Got quiet on that one. (laughs) Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 5 says, Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. It'd be much better off if you just told the truth and said, Helping you move sounds horrible. I'm not going to do it if anything else good comes up. So I'm going to give you a call that morning and let you know whether I'm in or out. Because I'll be honest with you, I want to get credit for helping you move, so I'll take my picture and throw it on Facebook so everybody knows I helped you move, but if anything else comes up, I'm going to do that instead. It sounds really terrible, doesn't it? But isn't that sometimes what's going through our brain? It's terrible. Today we're talking about communion. We're talking about a commitment and a promise that God's made to us. Because God keeps his covenants, even if we don't. God keeps his promises. He's not a liar, even if we're liars. My hope is that today, that when we're done here, that you'll look at communion in a a totally different way. That it'll mean something totally different, maybe, than when you came in. First, let's talk about the Passover. Because the Passover is directly connected to communion. So in the Passover, God saved his people from death by the blood of the Lamb. 15 years before Jesus, the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. Maybe you remember how the story goes. Abraham hears from God. God tells him, go to a new land. He goes to a new place. Um, He has the patriarchs. We're big fans of the patriarchs, right? Oftentimes we forget that those patriarchs, that are so honored, were the same ones that sold Joseph into slavery. Yeah. I mean, they were going to kill him, but it was better for them. It profited in them more just to sell him into slavery. The patriarchs did that. So Joseph comes to a new land, and he has a lot of trials and tribulations, but he ends up raising to a level of power, second only to the Pharaoh himself. He's basically running the country. He brings his entire family to Egypt, and they are all doing very well. And they multiply, but then the Pharaoh changes, Joseph dies, no one really remembers all the cool stuff that happened. And so the new Pharaoh says, There's too many of these Hebrews, let's make them all slaves. 400 years later, Moses shows up to free God's people from slavery in Egypt. And that's where the Passover comes in. So Moses has come to set God's people free, and they've already brought nine plagues upon Egypt. Um, already, but every time they'd bring a plague, Pharaoh would say, oh, stop the plague. I'll let him go. And then as soon as the plague stopped, he uh, went back on his agreement. Imagine somebody so just despicable and vain that every time they made a commitment under pressure, when the pressure was released, they just backed out on the commitment. Nine times he backs out on his commitment and would not let God's people go. So then came the tenth and the final plague, and this one is a doozy. Let's look at Exodus chapter 11, I'm going to read 4 through 6. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn animals too. Then shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. That's some serious stuff right there. I mean, it's one thing for frogs and boils and all this other stuff, locusts. But this time, the death of the firstborn of everybody in the land of Egypt. That's a serious, serious plague coming. Now, God's people had been protected from all the other plagues without having to do anything. When the boils came, none of the Hebrews got boils. So they're looking around, everybody else is having a rough time, and they're like, ah, sucks to be you. (laughs) But this plague required action. They had to do something to be saved in this plague. Um, They had to participate in the process of their own salvation. Let's look at Exodus chapter 12, Verses 3 through 7. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's needs, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house where they eat it. Now Israel's actions did not save them. They didn't save them because they wanted to put the blood on the thing. But by listening and obeying the word of the Lord and taking action to show they believed it by faith, they were saved by death. God saved them from death. But they listened and obeyed that God said, if you cover this blood on the doorpost, then I will pass over you. It's a pretty wicked picture if you think about it. There's a death angel that's coming over the land. I don't know what a death angel looks like, but it sounds terrible. And the death angel knows who not to kill the firstborn in the household because of the blood of the sinless lamb that is covered over the doorpost. The blood is literally covering the household and the death angel passes right by them and they don't get the punishment. Now they had to do something. They had to be covered in the blood. They had to go out and take action for for this thing to happen. It didn't save them, but they were saved because they were obedient. Now in Exodus chapter 12... Verses 12-14, through 14, "...for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, But uh, uh, both man and beast. And against all, of God, all the gods in Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. This was a big day, and God wants them to remember the day they were saved from death. This is a, a huge event. They are saved from death. Shortly after that, they are going through the Red Sea, and they are now on their way and their adventure In God. They're saved from death. And he wants them to remember that this happened. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to skip down to 25 through 28. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he had promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what what do you mean by this service? that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of uh, Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did also. Here's the key points I want you to pull out of this uh, story of the Passover, the key details. Death was coming to every house every house, but God gave his people a way to be saved from death. Each one had to receive the lamb individually, but also with his neighbor in need and with the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel. This was an individual activity as well as a corporate activity that they were working together. The lamb was a male and without blemish. They had to listen and obey to the word of the Lord. They had to believe it as true, made evident by taking action and concerning it. It's interesting because, I don't know, I mean, I guess it's just people, right? Because we see it a lot with the Jews in the Old Testament and the Pharisees. It's people are always looking for where the line is drawn. Because they want to live as close to the line as possible and say things like, well, but didn't say this... Because when you look at the story of the Bible from the beginning to the end, it's really all about heart condition. A lot of times we look at the Old Testament as being like this testament of laws and wrath and the New Testament being this testament of grace and mercy. The Old Testament is grace and mercy too. You just got to read it and you'll see. The New Testament is judgment and wrath too. Just not until the end of it. So it's all the same. But what I'm trying to say is that we often look at this and say, uh... Believe it and true. So, when you believe something is true, it should cause you to take action in your life. If God says, I'm going to uh, kill someone in your household unless you put the blood over the door, and you say, well, the last nine times I didn't have to do anything. He couldn't possibly harm me this time and not do it. But the fact that they would come out and they would put the blood... in the the manner Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded, shows that their actions say that I believe it. I believe what God is saying is true, and I'm going to do something about it. Hold on to that. Put a pin in that one. We'll come back to it. The sacrificial lamb's blood covered the household and saved Israel from death. They are commanded to have this meal on a regular basis, generation to generation, so that they will never forget what God has saved them from. The Jews celebrated the Passover meal every year for over a thousand years before Jesus came back to earth. Its meaning and symbolism was well known and deeply ingrained in their lives and culture. It's easy, and I feel this way sometimes too, it's easy for us nowadays to look at... um, What's going on? Say, well, I never knew that before, and and I never made that connection. But understand that in the Jewish culture and tradition, they still celebrate the Passover meal now. They They call it the Seder meal. That every year they're commemorating this point where the blood of the lamb covered on their doorposts saved them from the death angel. None of them at this time, every year celebrating the Passover meal, none of them has a question about what the symbolism is, what it means, or why it exists. That's why when Jesus comes and changes it it with the disciples, that's why they can so easily understand the connections he's making between the symbols he's using and the story he's now telling. I'm sure it blew their mind. But we're looking at it like it's a cup of juice, it's a piece of cracker. But we're about to get a little deeper than that this morning. The, the Passover meal, sometimes it's called the Last Supper. This first moment of communion is a Passover meal. And it was taken literally just hours before Jesus gets turned in and eventually crucified. This is the last thing he's really doing with his disciples before his ministry comes, uh, comes full circle with crucifixion. He's about to change it. So now let's talk about communion. This is communion. We're going to take communion this morning. So, probably should pay attention. <laughs> through Jesus, we have a new covenant. And that's what communion symbolizes. This new covenant is an agreement between God and with mankind based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this was prophesied, uh, this new covenant, spoken through Jeremiah, that God would one day for his people do what the old covenant failed to do. Like we said, the, the, you know, so here we go. So, Jeremiah... Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34. Behold, a day is coming. Now, before I read this, sometimes this stuff, like, I don't know if you've ever read this portion of Scripture. It may seem new to you. But but when we start looking at uh, communion and the new covenant and what Jesus says, the Jews are very familiar with what the prophets said. Now, at the time of Jeremiah, my guess is a lot of them were standing around scratching their head like, Bro, we don't even understand what you're talking about right now. Like, I hear what you're saying, but, uh, but the Jews uh, in, this, in the time of Jesus are familiar with this. So when they start seeing this come true, that's why they're like, this must be the Messiah. Because they see what's, uh, what Jesus is doing, uh, fulfilling the prophecies that they've known. They've been waiting for a Messiah. They know it's coming. Okay, let's read Jeremiah. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one through 34. Behold, a day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord... But this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. for the, From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will be remembered no more. Jesus is establishing this new covenant right now with his disciples during the Passover meal. The flaw in the old covenant was people. The law isn't flawed. Your ability to follow the law is flawed. And honestly, and and Paul says so much in the New Testament, the the law just exposes the fact that, that you can't follow it. It shows you that you have sin. God knew you'd never be able to follow it. But now you don't have this excuse walking around talking about, if I just do everything right, I can be saved. First of all, you can't. And second of all, you can't. People broke the deal, not God. The glory in this new one is Jesus paid the price. The agreement is his. The covenant is perfect. Now, we see here in Jeremiah that the Lord refers to himself as the husband, implying Israel is his wife. It's interesting that that shows up all the way back in Jeremiah. Sometimes we think of that kind of a a Paul thing. Well, Paul just kind of tried to help us understand. I don't know. He mentions it back in Jeremiah too. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. See, therein lies the challenge in our culture today. God describes himself as the husband and his people as the wife. Paul reiterates this talking about how husbands need to lay their lives down sacrificially for their wives just as Christ laid it down for the church. And we're sitting here like, I don't even know what that means because people can't even stay married in my day and age. So no wonder it's so difficult to understand the massive impact of what Christ has done for us. Laid down his life as a sacrifice for the church. The Lord said to Jeremiah that they all shall know me. Meaning that all people will have the ability to have a personal relationship with God himself. No longer would one man have to tell people, hey, let me show this and you have to know them. God now has a relationship connected individually with each person from the greatest to the least. They shall know him. They shall have the ability to know him. And he will forgive their sins and inequities and remember them no more. Uh, Psalms 103, 11 and 12 says this. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. You can't get any further away than if the east is from the west. Now, the bread and the wine of the Passover meal relate back to God saving his people in Egypt, but Jesus is using these symbols to illustrate to his disciples his ultimate purpose. Let's look in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. I'm going to go from 26 to 30. It says, And they were eating the Passover meal. Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, "Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin." But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new in your father, in my father's kingdom. And when they sang a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and we know how that story ends. Now, he chose the third cup, the cup of redemption. Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We've seen that throughout the course of history up until this point. Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, And according to the law, almost all things are purified, cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. We see Jesus taking the bread and taking the the juice or the, the wine And he's making the connection there between the lamb that was uh, killed and eaten and the blood that was shed above the doorpost. And he's saying, that blood of redemption that we've been celebrating for thousands of years, that's now my blood. My blood will be your redemption. This body that is broken is now my body that will be broken for you. Passover becomes communion through Jesus Christ. He is the lamb of God. He's the lamb of God. We're all going to receive death. Watch the connection here. We are all going to receive death, but God gave us a way to be saved from death. Jesus is perfect. He's the unblemished, sacrificial lamb whose blood forgives sin and brings life. We have to listen and obey to the word of the Lord, and we have to believe it is true and take action because of it. How do you believe it if you're not willing to take action because of it? We must accept salvation through Jesus individually, but also share in this covenant with the whole assembly of the congregation as Christ's bride, as the church. The church isn't just a group of individuals worshiping at the same time in the same place. The church is a community, a family, the bride of Christ. It's so much more than just individuals in one room at the same time. So this communion, this new covenant is with you individually, but it is also with us corporately as a church. First John one twenty nine, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Says the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John saw it coming. He knew what he was looking for, and he sees Jesus, he's like, Hey, that is the Lamb of God. Jesus has become our final sacrifice for sin once and for all time. Aren't you glad that every Sunday we don't bring a lamb up front? Yeah. Sprinkle it on the congregation. And we don't do that because Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. It's significant. This covenant will never expire because Jesus is still alive. Yes. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we will live forever in heaven as well. So the parties haven't died. There's no breaking of this covenant. You're in a marriage vow, so till death to do us part. Because after you die, the covenant is broken. But Jesus lives forever, and you will live forever in heaven. This covenant, this new covenant, will never be broken. 1 John 2.2 2 says this, And he himself is the propitiation, sacrifice, atonement, for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says, Whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because His forbearance, because of his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Yeah. Now, we're going to take communion this morning. Uh, I know it looks casual, but it's not. Uh, I don't, we do communion once a month and I don't know how many times you've been here and watched it. Uh, People have different traditions when it comes to communion. Um, Some churches, I think the Lutheran church does communion every, every Sunday. Um, Some, some don't do it very often. Uh, In the old days of faith and victory, we used to do it about once a year because every time we did it, Pastor Matt would preach on it and he'd want to make sure people definitely know what they're doing and why because we don't want it to be a casual thing. And so you could go back and listen to one of those sermons. Actually, you probably should. I think the one that he, the last time he preached it, I want to say 2015, is called uh, The Covenant of Blood. Go back on the website, just type in covenant. It'll pop up. Listen to it. It's about 55 minutes. Uh, Very good sermon. Um, And so we don't take it casually here. Uh, We want you to know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Um, although it doesn't look quite as liturgical as it does in other places. So we do communion on the last Sunday of every month. Uh, we're commanded to do it on a regular basis, but we want to avoid just becoming uh, it becoming a ritual without meaning. Um, like I said, originally, that's kind of was the deal. It's like we, didn't want it to, we wanted people to take it seriously. We want to make sure they understood. Uh, but we realized once a year just isn't enough to have that ceremonial celebration of how Christ shed his blood that we may have life. So we're like, we got to bump it up, but we don't want it to be, um, lose its meaning. So we settle on once a month. It's just how we do it. We do communion in the church service because it 's not just a moment between, not just a moment between you and jesus it 's also the communion of the saints, the family of christ together we 're doing this thing together you 're doing it by individually, but we 're also doing it together we 're communing in this thing together. Um, we use a, a cracker gluten free in case you were uh, worried about that it 's unleavened bread because leaven is often used to represent sin in the bible, and jesus 's body was free from all sin. So that's why we use the unleavened cracker. Gluten-free is just a side benefit because I don't want to have a distraction when you're trying to commune with the Lord. It's a symbol. It's not his actual flesh. It's a cracker. It's not flesh. It's just a symbol of his body broken for you. We use grape juice. And listen, I don't want to get in an argument about it this morning, okay? We're using grape juice. I don't think alcohol is necessary or prudent for this ceremony. I don't think that alcohol being in the wine or the grape juice is going to make it any more holy or any more purposeful to you. But I do think that there is a lot of people in this church and in in the world that struggle with substance abuse. And how could I have you take a moment to reflect and ask for forgiveness of your sins and then parade you up here and throw your biggest uh, temptation in your face? Now... What you can do is wait for Pastor Todd to post a meme and then just jump on there and just argue all day long if you want to, but we're not going to do it this morning. It's not his actual blood. It may be Welch's. It's just a symbol. You don't have to be a member of Faith and Victory Church. Uh, We believe that all believers together are the collective body of Christ and we're communing together. Uh, it, it, it connects us all, all of us believers, past, present, and future believers. They've been doing this for thousands of years. All over the world, they do this. Every time you come up and take communion, you're communing with every believer everywhere around the world. That's pretty amazing, significant impact, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just the last Sunday of the month. It's a huge, gigantic thing that we we're all doing to remember the sacrifice that Christ has made. You do have to be a believer, though. Because how can you commemorate the sacrifice unto salvation if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior? That would be doing it in an unworthy manner. Yeah. Now I know us as a, us as a people, uh, spend, we're social creatures, so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out who doesn't belong in the herd and separate them out, right? So our fear from probably about middle school, maybe even younger these days, is that we're going to be separated out of the group. So when it comes to something like communion or or whatever, tithes and offerings in the church, I think there's often this fear that if I don't go up there, everyone's going to be staring at me and know that I'm not a believer yet. So you feel compelled to go up there because you think people are staring at you. No one's staring at you. No one's paying attention if you came up. They got a lot of reconciling to do on their own. No one's watching to see if you put anything in the offering uh, basket. No one's watching if you come up for communion or not. They're worried about their own salvation. They're not worried that if you come up here and kneel at the altar during the song. No one's saying, oh, so-and-so, wow, they must be pretty holy because they're up there kneeling every time. No, don't worry about that here. That's not how it works here. But you don't want to come up unless you are saved because then you're doing it in an unworthy manner. There's no power in the cracker or the juice. The power is in the blood of Jesus Christ. So you should examine yourself first before taking communion. Get your heart right with the Lord. This is the verse we often read when we're doing communion, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. The Apostle Paul is speaking. For I have received from the Lord that of which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself... And so let him eat, and, uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is a sticking point. Sometimes people get worried talking about unworthy manners. So an unworthy manner uh, would be not taking it seriously. Uh, taking it when you're not saved. Uh, not considering the amazing sacrifice and gift of salvation. Unworthy manner would be not taking a moment to reconcile with the Lord and recognize your own depravity and asking for forgiveness of your sins. That's why we're not in a hurry to have you come up here. That's why we have you take it on your own, because you don't need a mediator to come commune with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying any other traditions are wrong. I'm not saying that if the pastor's up here, I'm not saying that's wrong. One time we were at a church, just one time, And they had what I would refer to as Mic Communion, Mic Communion, because it was this little cup of juice with cellophane over it, and this little cracker stuck on top with cellophane over that, and they just handed those out, and I just, they probably didn't say these words, but it felt like it was like, okay, unwrap your cracker, because we were all doing it together, and it just, I don't know, it just felt weird, (laughs) and then the next time we went to that church, they didn't do communion that way. So they must have felt worried about it, too. But what I'm saying is, is, is that that part of it is not the significance of it. So the, that's why you say you come up when you're ready, because you need to take a moment to get your heart right before the Lord, to ask for forgiveness of those sins, to reconcile with the Lord and recognize the significance of his saving grace that you do not deserve, but you have received anyway. Before you walk up and take communion... Be prayerful, be mindful, understand what you're doing. Do it with the right heart condition. This should be a supremely meaningful experience for you, but it means nothing if you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It means nothing. So if you're in this room and you have not accepted uh, Jesus as your Lord and Savior, i want to give you a chance to today. Gosh, what better time, right, than before we take communion? So if that's you, I want you to understand this is what it means to be saved. You need to first accept that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. If you ever hear somebody say they're a Christian and then also say they've never really done anything wrong that they need to ask for forgiveness for, they are not a Christian. That is the basic foundational premise of Christianity is that you need a Savior from your sins. You cannot do it on your own no matter how good you want to try to be. You need a Savior. You need to accept that as fact and reality. Then you need to believe that Jesus Christ is that Savior, that it was His blood and His sacrifice that can save you from sin. Through no other way may you be saved than that. If you hear a Christian say there are multiple ways to get to heaven, they are not a Christian because this is a foundational premise of Christianity. You are a sinner. You need a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. That's the only way that it works. And you need to accept it and believe it and then take action. You need to confess that. You need to confess to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are my salvation. I am a sinner. These are my sins. Please forgive me of my sins. It helps to name them individually, although we only have a few more minutes left of service, so you might not have time. But take the time because it's meaningful and impactful. Accept you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is your salvation. Confess those sins. And now, I learned this from uh, watching Billy Graham. Uh, It's really easy for me to ask you to give your life to Christ and let you sit in your seat because it's more comfortable. But what Billy Graham said is, when when he was asked, why do you make people walk up front? He said, if the commitment you're making is in your life with Jesus Christ to give your life to Him is not so strong that it moves you to stand up and walk in front of a bunch of other Christians and be prayed for then how powerful is it really to you? If you can't stand up and confess your faith in front of everybody in this room how are you going to walk out of that door and have it stick? Now I'm not judging. You could sit in your seat and give your life to Christ and never walk up anywhere and be totally saved. I'm not the one making the decision but you need to reflect on that decision. So why don't you bow your heads with me? Right now, you've heard about communion. You've heard about the Passover. You've heard about Christ's sacrifice. No more needs to be said. If you've never given your life to Christ before and you want to do it for the first time today, I want you to walk up to this front of the room and let somebody pray for you. There's no better time, no better place. The community of believers. If that's you, come up here. We'll pray for you. Why don't you stand with me together? Stand with me together. As we sing this last song, we're going to have communion. Uh, Use the outside aisles. Come in, take communion, come back to your seats. But take a moment to reflect on the sacrifice that Christ made for you. It's very important. This isn't just something we walk through. This is something we mean. So as this next song goes, take your moment, come up, have communion, go back to your seat and continue to worship.
1: sacrifice to trade this sinner you honor father for your word today father Lord we are so
0: grateful God that you keep your promises Lord you keep your promises to us God and I thank you for the word that has gone for today Lord I pray a covering over it in the precious name of Jesus God that as we walk through our days father
1: that we remember the promise and the sacrifice you've made oh God Lord we honor you and glorify your holy name in Jesus name Amen